And now, as we seek to faithfully preach it, we pray for your Holy Spirit, for his help in opening up our minds to be able to see the glory of your truth and the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus. May we come away with our hearts stirred up with greater affection for Christ and with deeper faith in him. For your glory, for our good, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, church, last week we started an Advent series where we are planning to go through the first chapter of Luke's gospel. We've been in a series prior looking at specific episodes within the gospel of Luke, and now we're just going to camp in chapter one, uh, especially during this particular Advent series. We're calling it the Advent of a King. Now, for those of you who grew up in churches or traditions where maybe you didn't celebrate Advent, in case you're not aware, the word Advent itself, it means coming, it means arrival. And so within Christian tradition, typically the first four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day mark out the Advent season. And churches celebrate by directing our worship and our devotion to the first coming of the Messiah, to the arrival of Christ the King some 2,000 years ago in the little town of Bethlehem. And at the same time, our celebration of Advent also directs us forward into the future, awaiting for the second coming, the second arrival of the King when he comes to establish his kingdom in all of its fullness and to complete the rescue of his redeemed. So this morning, in Luke's Gospel, In his recounting of Jesus' birth narrative, we arrive at an event known as the Annunciation. That glorious day when the angel Gabriel appeared to a young virgin Mary, announcing that she would miraculously conceive and give birth to the Son of God. Now, I, I think it's probably safe to say that most of us, because of our uh the churches or the traditions we grew up in, probably most of us did not grow up celebrating Annunciation Day. Traditionally, Annunciation Day is observed every March 25th, and it commemorates the day that the Son of God was conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you just do the math there, nine months later is December 25th, Christmas Day. Now, when it comes to Christmas, I'm sure that's a day all of us have celebrated. But I think you could make the case that Annunciation Day is actually a more important holiday because the incarnation of the Son of God actually took place then when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit nine months prior to Christmas. In fact, if you want to dive even deeper into uh, the uh, ancient Judeo-Christian tradition, March 25th, in correlation with the spring equinox, uh, equinox was, March 25th was actually celebrated as the day of God's first act of creation, when he said, let there be light. And it was also traditionally viewed as the day of Christ's death, his crucifixion which is why Good Friday generally occurs during the same season. And so March 25th commemorates the beginning of creation, Genesis 1, and the beginning of new creation, 
both the incarnation and the crucifixion. And so you can see why, in Christian tradition, why March 25th is often considered to be the most important date in the calendar. J.R.R. Tolkien certainly held to that belief, so much so that he carried over this conviction into his fictional world of Middle-earth. According to the calendar system of Middle-earth, March 25th marks the day when the one ring was destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom and the Dark Lord Sauron was defeated. That's how important of a day it is. Everything changed in Middle-earth. Nothing remained the same on that March 25th when the one ring was unmade. And similarly, everything changed and nothing remained the same on that March 25th when the Son of God was made, made in the flesh as a tiny zygote in Mary's womb. That's the incarnation. Now, you know, for me and my family, you know, we definitely still plan on observing December 25th, celebrating the birth of Christ during Christmas. But now I'm wondering, why don't I celebrate the Annunciation? Now I realize, I think I'm missing out. I think there's a lot to be learned from not just Christmas, but from the Annunciation, which is why I'm so excited to be able to study this text with you this morning. I'd like to draw your attention to this miraculous and monumental event in history. And I want to point out in this passage four elements, four unique elements to the story. And if you want to follow along, just look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline there. I've listed it out for you. First, we're going to consider the lowliness of the setting in which this birth announcement takes place. Second, we're going to consider the graciousness of this greeting that Mary receives. Third, we'll consider the impossibility of this promise to which the angel Gabriel makes. And fourth, we'll consider the beauty of the response that Mary gives. So that's where we're going to be going. Let's start off by considering the lowliness of this setting in which our story takes place. It's particularly set in contrast to the greatness of the previous passage that we studied last week where Gabriel made another birth announcement, but that time he made it to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. That took place in the royal city of Jerusalem while Zechariah was in the holy temple of God, ministering in the holy place, serving as a venerable priest of Israel. But here in our text, starting in verse 26, the narrative moves and it shifts from Jerusalem and a priest to a small rural village and a poor unmarried girl. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the fact that Luke had to specify Nazareth as a city of Galilee suggests for us that his intended readers probably were unfamiliar with this village. And calling it a city is actually being quite generous. Nazareth was a small, insignificant, rural village situated on the border of Galilee and Samaria. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was a common saying in those days because that village had such a poor reputation. No one expected much of Nazareth. 
And that's what makes Nazareth such a surprising choice as the setting for this birth announcement. If the announcement for the Messiah's predecessor, for John the Baptist, took place in the holiest of cities and in the holiest of spaces, then you would assume that the setting for the actual birth of the Messiah would be even grander. It would be even more glorious. But instead... Instead, God chooses to send Gabriel to a backwater village. And instead of the temple in Jerusalem, God announces plans to reside in the womb of a poor village girl. Let's keep reading in verse 27. Gabriel is sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, according to ancient Near Eastern custom, betrothal was a formal legal arrangement that functioned like an engagement period between a couple. But unlike unlike in our day, a betrothal was actually legally binding. The groom's family would have already paid a bride price, and so backing out of a betrothal would have required divorce and grounds for divorce, like sexual infidelity. Now, the betrothal period would typically last for an entire year, and during that year, the bride would still remain with her family in her father's house. And though the two were legally bound together, but in the eyes of God, the man and the woman were not yet married. They were not yet husband and wife, and so any sexual activity between the two of them was not yet permitted. And that's the situation that Mary finds herself in when Gabriel suddenly appears to her with this greeting. That's why she's accurately described by Luke as a virgin. She has never had sexual relations with any man, including Joseph. She emphasizes that later on in verse 34. There, the the Greek literally says, How will this be, since I do not know a man? No being used as a common euphemism for uh, sexual intimacy within the Bible. She is saying, I am truly a virgin. Now, don't be alarmed, but in those days, the usual age for a woman to be betrothed was the age of 12 or 13. Uh, so very different customs than in our day, but that was, that was typical in the first century. So Mary was very likely at this time a teenage girl. And she was from a poor family. And she was marrying into another poor family. Apparently, Joseph wasn't all that well off either. Because later on in Luke's gospel, in chapter 2, verse 24, when Joseph and Mary take baby Jesus to the temple to present him before the Lord, it says there that they offer up as sacrifice two turtle doves. If you look it up in the law, most people would sacrifice in that moment a lamb because most people could afford a lamb. But the poorest of the poor in Israel were allowed to substitute two turtle doves, and that's Mary's situation. She is a poor teenage girl from a poor, insignificant town in the backwaters of Galilee. So consider the setting of our passage in contrast to last week's. The prominence of Jerusalem, a priest and a temple, are all set in contrast to the lowliness of Nazareth, a poor village girl, and a virgin womb. I believe this contrast is all intentional. 
the lowly setting of this birth announcement is meant to forecast the lowly, humble nature of Jesus' character and ministry. You see, contrary to popular belief in those days, Israel's Messiah would not be associated with political power or military might. Now, that's, of course, not to deny his royal lineage. That's not to deny his strength or his sovereignty. He is the Lion of Judah, but he appears as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is a mighty king, but he came in the form of a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so for 30 years, for 30 years, Jesus lived in obscurity, apprenticing under his earthly father, learning his trade as a carpenter, as a craftsman. And even during those three short years of public ministry, he was a wandering nomad, traveling from town to town with his band of disciples, surviving on the charity of others. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And his public ministry, as we know, ended in shame and in disrepute. He was arrested and tried as a blasphemer. He was tortured and executed as an insurrectionist. His life in ministry was marked by lowliness and humility. And it all stems back to this birth announcement found in this morning's passage, which I think serves as a much-needed rebuke to the contemporary church's obsession with power and prominence. We so need to hear this. Because the contemporary church seeks to grow the church, and rightly so, but growth, growth has been reinterpreted with worldly categories and worldly definitions. Churches seek to grow in political power, in societal prominence. Church leaders seek to grow their own platforms and their own popularity. If Christians are more known in the eyes of the world for their efforts to grab at or to retain power and influence, to, to win all of their arguments, to defeat all of their enemies, if, if that is the prevailing attitude that we are known for, then we have completely lost sight of the Messiah. We are not giving a faithful witness to who he is. We need to go back all the way back to his annunciation to recover the lowly and humble heart of Christ. I think that's what we can learn from just the very setting of this birth announcement. So that's the first element to consider. Secondly, consider with me the graciousness of this greeting that Mary receives. Look at verse 28. There the angel of Gabriel speaks. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the, say, at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So we're told that Mary at first was troubled. She was unsure how to interpret this greeting. I mean, you would think that hearing an angel announce, The Lord is with you, would automatically be interpreted as a good thing, as a comforting thing. But apparently, it depends. It depends on whether the Lord's presence is with you in bare justice and judgment, because if that's the case, then 
then Mary, along with the rest of us, are doomed because we all stand guilty as sinners. In that case, we should all be greatly troubled in his presence. But if the Lord is with you in grace, in gracious favor, well, then you have no need to fear. You have no reason to be afraid of his presence. And that is exactly what the angel Gabriel announces when he says, O favored one. The Greek word there for O favored one contains the very root word for the word grace, for God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Gabriel is assuring Mary that the Lord is with her, not in bare justice, but in grace. And he goes on to say in verse 30 that she need not be afraid because she has found favor with God. Now, that favor is not something that she merited. She didn't do anything to prove herself worthy of God's favor. That favor, as we see, is rooted in grace. It's in God showing someone favor and kindness in spite of the fact that they are unworthy of it. That's one of, I think, the big differences between Protestants and Catholics when it comes to Mother Mary. We all think highly of Mary. She is the blessed mother of our Lord. But notice how the text does not say she is full of grace, as if there's something inherently grace-giving about her. Mary is not a source of grace. She, like all believers, as we see here, is an object of grace. And so that's why Protestants, we don't pray to Mary. We don't treat her as a repository of grace. We honor her instead as a fellow recipient of grace. Now, we're told in verse 31 that this grace that she receives takes shape in the form of a baby. Listen to verses 31 to 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now notice with me three key descriptions of this baby to be miraculously conceived in her womb. First, he's a savior. Second, he is a Davidic king. And third, he's the son of God. So first, notice how this child will be a savior. That's what the name Jesus means. It literally translates to the Lord saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. It was a common name in those days, just as Joshua was common both in the Old Testament and even today. I'm sure you know many Joshuas. But while most kids in those days were named Jesus or, or named Joshua in order to commemorate God's saving acts on behalf of Israel in the distant past, this Jesus has a name that actually points forward to what God is going to accomplish through him to save not just, not just ethnic Israel, but to save all, save all of us, to save all of us from our sins. So second, so first notice he's a savior. Second, notice how this child is of royal heritage, how he is 
a Davidic king in the line of David. Earlier, Luke mentioned how Joseph, uh, his adoptive father, was of the house of David. So by virtue of his adopted status, Jesus is a legitimate heir and and has a legitimate claim to David's throne. And that's what Gabriel promises, that the Lord God will give to Jesus the throne of his father David, uh, as in his ancestor David. And he will reign over the kingdom of God as the rightful heir to all the promises that were made to David and his kin. David, as we see in 2 Samuel 7, was promised that through his line, there would come a son who would be the Messiah, which in Hebrew translates to the anointed one or the chosen one. In Greek, the word is Christ. And so that's why he's called Jesus Christ, not because Christ is his last name. No, Christ is his royal title. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of Israel to come through David's line. Third, notice how this child is not just going to be a special king. He won't just be a saving hero among men. Notice how he will be divine in nature as the very Son of God. He will be called the Son of the Most High, Most High being a common synonym for God. This child is unique in this very way. Because John the Baptist, as we see, and as he's going to be introduced uh, later in verse 76, he's called the prophet of the Most High. It's an honorable position to be called the prophet of the Most High. But Jesus is even grander. Jesus is the only one called the Son of the Most High. And here we really just get a, a hint of the very dual nature of Jesus being both God and man. Now we're going to see that emphasized even more in our next point. But before we move on, let's just, let's just stop and think about just how gracious this greeting is. This is a birth announcement saturated with grace. It, it is a proclamation of good news. It's, a, it's an announcement of comfort and joy, especially for those who are greatly troubled by their sin or by their sense of unworthiness to be in the very presence of the Lord. Friends, if, if you're feeling greatly troubled by the thought of your sins, if you are discomforted by the thought of being in the Lord's presence, then I, I hope you can hear and perceive the goodness and the grace of this announcement that Gabriel is making. I mean, you're probably doing all you can right now to assuage your guilt and to, 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 to assuage the, the sense of shame that you feel. You're probably doing all you can to improve yourself, trying to be a kinder, more gentler person, trying to sin less, to love more. You're probably trying to do all you can. But the reality is that you will never do enough to earn God's favor. You'll never be enough to deserve to be in his presence. The only way to find favor with God is to be found in a saving relationship with his son. This very child being promised to Mary. You need to be in relationship with him. And that leads 
to the third element of this story that I'd like to draw your attention to, to, to this very child being promised. Consider now the impossibility of this promise that Gabriel makes, that a virgin would give birth. And that's what really perplexes Mary in verse 34. Look in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, unlike Zechariah last week and how his response to Gabriel's birth announcement was filled with, with doubt and filled with, uh, with disbelief, there doesn't appear to be any disbelief in Mary's response. She doesn't doubt that it's going to happen. She just wonders, how is this going to happen? Because she knows enough biology to know where babies come from. But she also knows that she has never known a man in that way. So listen to Gabriel's answer in verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So how is this going to work? How is a virgin going to conceive a child? Gabriel says, God's going to make it happen. God's going to do it. Now, there's no reason to crassly interpret this to imply that somehow God impregnated Mary as if they had sexual relations. If that were the case, then that wouldn't have been viewed as an impossibility back then in the first century. Because in those days, there were plenty of myths going around out there about Greek gods impregnating human women and they give birth to demigods, you know, Hercules and all these other heroes. That's, that was part of the worldview in those days. That wouldn't have been an impossibility in their minds. But what's being described here is clearly impossible to them. Because what's being described here is different. There's no sex involved. So it would have been viewed by everyone as an impossibility. What Gabriel is talking about is a divine act of creation by the sovereign creative power of the Holy Spirit. He tells Mary that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, that verb there for overshadow appears in two particular places in the Bible. It appears in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. So, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it uses this very same verb. And that's describing when the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord, overshadows the tabernacle that is built in Exodus, signaling at that moment the presence of God descending upon that holy space known as the tabernacle. This word also shows up later in Luke's gospel, later on in the transfiguration, where another cloud overshadows the mountain where Jesus and his disciples are on. In each instance, it is the very presence of God that shows up, overshadowing the tabernacle, overshadowing the Mount of Transfiguration, and here, overshadowing the virgin womb of Mary. So you can think of it in this way. Think of Mary's womb as serving like a temporary tabernacle for the next nine months. 
And just as all the objects in the tabernacle were considered holy once the glory cloud ascended and overshadowed it, in the same way, we're told that the child in her womb is holy. He's set apart. He's different. He's one of a kind. He's the only begotten son of God. This is why, friends, it is so vital for us to preserve and to defend the doctrine of the virgin birth. Because our belief in the virgin birth directly informs our belief in the dual nature of Jesus as both son of God and son of man, fully God, fully man in one person. That's the historic biblical position on the singular personhood and the dual nature of Jesus Christ. And it is a doctrine that is strengthened and secured by this very miracle, the virgin birth. Because if you just think about it, if Jesus, Jesus had not been born by a human mother, if he just was suddenly just transplanted down onto the earth, we might have questioned his full, full humanity. Is he really one of us? Is he really like us? If he doesn't even have a mother, he wasn't born like us. But on the other hand, if he were conceived like everyone else, through the conjugal union of a father and a mother, then we might question his full divinity. How is he different than us? But you see how a virgin conception and a natural birth by a mother strengthens and secures our conviction that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He is like us, at the same time different than us. And that's what makes Jesus so unique among all other support, uh, uh, supposed saviors. He really does stand apart as the perfect mediator, as the only mediator between God and man. The gospel tells us that there is a great divide between God and mankind. There's a deep hostility between us due to the offense of our sin against the purity of his holiness. And there's nothing that we can do in order to reconcile us back to God. We desperately need another. We need to turn to a mediator to reconcile us. And just think about the job of a mediator. What, what do mediators typically do? Well, they typically, they bring two disputing parties to the table in order to achieve reconciliation. And the best kind of mediator is the kind of person that can fully represent both parties. The best mediator is the kind that understands perfectly both sides so that they can be able to effectively represent both sides, bringing them to a reconciliation. Now, that's already difficult enough to achieve in most disputes. And now if we're dealing with hostility between God and man, then it's downright impossible to find a mediator that fully represents both. Unless, unless he's a God-man, unless he is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. Jesus is the best of all mediators. So friends, look no further. Just conclude your search. It's over. You don't need to look anywhere else. Look to Jesus. He is the best. 
He is the only one who can reconcile you to God because he is the only Savior who is God incarnate, God made man. And that's why the virgin birth is not some minor doctrine that we can just agree to disagree on. No, without the virgin birth, you're dealing with a completely different Savior who, who won't be able to save you in the end. I, I know a virgin birth is hard to believe. It sounds impossible, as it should, because that's how we know that this is actually God's doing. That's Gabriel's logic in verses 36 to 37. Look, look there, verse 36. He references Mary's relative Elizabeth and her miraculous pregnancy in order to affirm that God can do what we consider to be impossible. Verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Just let that sink in. Nothing is impossible with God. The one mediator between God and man was born under impossible conditions, making him uniquely qualified from now on to do the impossible. So take comfort in knowing that no one has gone so far down the road of rebellion to make it impossible for them to be reconciled back to God. So just think about that friend of yours or that family member whose heart is so hardened towards God that, it, that they seem impossible to change. Or, or, or maybe even you yourself, you feel so sinful that you've come to the conclusion that you are impossible to save. But the good news is that nothing, absolutely nothing, is impossible with God. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe it? Mary did. And it was evident in her response. And this is the fourth element I want to draw our attention to. Consider the beauty of Mary's response in verse 38. Let me read that. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now that's quite impressive. Mary submits. Let it be to me. And that takes courage. Because she's about to be an unwed mother. She's about to be a teen mom. People will talk. Joseph will likely reject her and end the betrothal. She's never going to find another husband. Everything appears to be falling apart. And yet she submits to the Lord. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Now that, that sounds to me a whole lot like Isaiah's, here I am, send me. Or Esther's, if I perish, I perish. Or Job's, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or Jesus's, not my will, but yours be done. Those are all statements of faith. Let it be to me 
according to your word. That is a beautiful response of faith. And it's not blind faith. Mary's not just closing her eyes and leaping into the dark. No, she is a smart girl. She knows how to count the costs. She can predict what's coming. She can foresee all the personal costs, all the misunderstanding, all the rejection, all the shaming, all the loneliness, and yet she was willing to obey because she trusted God's word. Because she believed that his ways are higher than hers, that his will is a good will, even if she can't fully make sense of it all at the moment. She doesn't ask for any further sign, any, for, for any further confirmation. She concludes that the Lord has spoken. Let it be to me according to his word. I wonder, friends, I wonder what has the Lord been calling you to do lately? Could it be something that you're hesitant to do because those personal costs are just so high? Standing up for what is right, even if it might cost you opportunities in school or in the workplace. Sharing your faith, even if it might draw criticism or ridicule. Repenting of destructive behaviors that have been harming your health or ruining your relationships. Or maybe, maybe the hardest thing God has been calling you to do is to deny yourself, to pick up your cross daily, and to follow him. Yes, those costs are high, and you're not sure whether you can do it, which in the end is true. You can't. You can't do it. For you, it is impossible. But remember, Nothing is impossible with God. Trust in the Lord. Put your faith in God. And if you're not sure what that means or, or what that even looks like, then just consider Mary. Consider this beautiful response of faith. Use her very words to tell the Lord yourself, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's go to God now. Praying that very prayer. Oh God, we come to you in humility. We come to you with a submissive heart. We are your servants. Let it be to us according to your word. Whatever you would have of us, however you would use us, whatever you are calling us to do, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow you into the hard places, to do the hard things. Let it be to us according to your will. In your name, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.